Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 192 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about Our Lady of Cabejo. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to stick around for the end of the episode, as we'll have your feedback on our recent episode on Noah's Ark and the Great Flood. But first... In 1981, a group of schoolchildren in Rwanda began reporting visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She gave them assurances of God's love, but she also warned them that a terrible disaster that could happen. After church authorities investigated, they approved certain visions at Cabejo. These are the only African apparitions with such approval, but the church also warned about false apparitions at Cabejo. So what did Our Lady of Cabejo say? what happened after her revelations, and what do believers need to watch out for? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, we have a special sponsor for today's episode. That's Amagara Marungi, a charity founded by one of our patrons, Bill and Joanna Martel. So Bill and Joanna have long worked to support a Catholic school in Uganda, and in 2021, they decided to expand their mission. As Catholic parishioners in Maine, they saw that more and more priests from Africa were coming to the United States to help make up for our present lack of priestly vocations. But they also knew of the extreme need in many parts of Africa. They recognized that as African communities were providing their sons for our spiritual needs, American Catholics could show their gratitude by providing for the financial and material needs of widows, children, women, and those uniquely at risk. Their first project was funding for an ultrasound for the local health care center in Rubanda, Uganda, where an African priest in their parish comes from. And private donations, as well as support from the Knights of Columbus, purchased the machine in June and since then has been used for almost 400 patients, including 97 pregnancies. Their second project has been Mazoldi Community College, a school started by the Apostles of Jesus Religious Order to train at-risk young men in basic job skills so they can support their families and themselves. Future projects include an operating room for the health center, and with a new priest who recently arrived from Cameroon, they started discussing with him about needs in his community. You can find out more about Amagara Marungi and their mission and how you can join in their effort with a donation at amagaramarungi.org, and because that may be tough to find uh, to spell out, you can also visit sqpn.com slash helpafrica, and you'll be directed from there. So that's sqpn.com slash help Africa. Very easy. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we need to say to begin to discuss today's mystery? Today's mystery involves an apparition of the Virgin Mary that occurred in Africa. And like all appearances of saints, this would be a matter of private revelation rather than public revelation. Public revelation, like what we find in the Bible, is authoritative for everyone. But private revelation is not. 
Over the centuries, the Church has developed criteria for evaluating private revelations and whether they're genuine. In episode 84, we covered how the Church evaluates private revelations, so listeners can go back to that episode for more information on the subject. This will be part one of a two-parter. Today, we'll be telling the story of how the apparitions began and will lead up to a particularly dramatic revelation. Then next week, we'll tell you what happened afterwards and go into analysis mode to look at the apparitions from the perspectives of faith and reason. We also should mention that some of the things we discuss may be disturbing because there was a genocidal war in Rwanda in the 1990s. But as always, we'll do our best to keep things clinical and not make things unduly sensationalistic, though one revelation we hear today will be dramatic. What sources will we be using to investigate this mystery? There are two principal sources. The first is a declaration that was issued in 2001 by Bishop Augustin Misago of the Diocese of Gikongoro. This document was the result of a diocesan investigation that had been conducted into the apparitions for 20 years. And in 2001, the local bishop gave his approval to a set of the apparitions. The document is almost 12,000 words long, so it's a very good source of information. And because of the careful way it was prepared, it's our most authoritative source on what happened. But it doesn't cover everything. It's written in a summary form rather than providing a detailed narrative. And so we'll also be using a popular level account written by Immaculate Ilibagiza. It's called Our Lady of Cabejo, Mary Speaks to the World from the Heart of Africa. And it's based on her memories because she was growing up in Rwanda at the time of the apparitions. It's also based on other information that she was told by others. So it's a work of oral history. Many of our listeners may not be that familiar with Rwanda. What can you tell us about the country? Rwanda is a Central African country in the Great Lakes region of Africa. It's just below the equator, and today about 12 million people live there. For a time, the country was colonized by Germany and then by Belgium, but it obtained its independence in 1962. The major languages are Kinyarwanda, French, English, and Swahili. There are two major ethnic groups in the nation, the Hutus, who represent about 85% of the population, and the Tutsis, who represent about 14%. 94% of the population are Christians, with Catholic Christians being the largest group at about 44% of the population. And let's talk about Cabejo itself. Is it a large city? It's not. Cabejo is a town located in the southern portion of Rwanda. When the apparitions began in 1981, it was part of the Diocese of Butare. But in 1992, the Diocese of Gikongoro was founded, and so it belongs to the Diocese of Gikongoro now. Cabejo has about 20,000 people today, and while it has experienced some development in the last 40 years, it was a very poor, small place at the time of the apparitions in 1981. As Immaculate Ilibagiza writes in her book, Our Lady of Cabejo, The community didn't have the resources to care for its own impoverished people, let alone a multitude of unexpected and hungry guests. The local residents fed their families with what little food they pulled from the soil around their huts. There weren't any motels or hostels to be found within 100 miles in any direction, and there wasn't a grocery store, a restaurant, or even a single public restroom in town. How could there be? There was no running water or electricity. There wasn't even a road capable of handling any means of transportation larger than a donkey. Kibeho was one of the poorest villages 
in one of the world's poorest countries. And when did the apparitions begin? They started on Saturday, November 28th, 1981, at the College of Cabejo. And this means something different than you might expect. This college is what we would refer to more as a high school boarding school. So it offers high school education, and the, the students boarded there in dormitories. The first of several seers was a student named Alphonsine Mumureke. She was born in 1965, and she was 16 years old at the time. This particular day, Alphonsine had just completed a pop quiz in geography when she found herself overcome by a strange mixture of emotions, a combination of both joy and dread. That day, as she was helping serve lunch in the dining hall by filling the water glasses of the other girls, she heard someone calling her name. She placed the water pitcher on a table and walked slowly toward the main corridor, where she felt she was being summoned. Her skin tingled and her hands trembled as she approached the foyer. She was also moving so strangely that she couldn't remember how to put one foot in front of the other. Within a few seconds, she didn't have control of her body at all. The raucous schoolgirl chatter echoing through the lunchroom faded into silence. A gentle voice was speaking to Alphonsine, but it was unlike any she'd ever heard. My child, it beckoned, soft as air and sweeter than music. Alphonsine lost all sense of time and space. She didn't know where she was or who was calling her. She hesitated, but then answered with the polite response Rwandan children use when addressing a respected elder. Long life to you. At this point, the teenager's line of vision narrowed so that all she could see was a brilliantly luminous white cloud materializing in midair a few feet in front of her. My child the voice called to her again. Then, to Alphonsine's amazement, the most lovely woman she had ever beheld emerged from the cloud, floating between the floor and ceiling in a pool of shimmering light. She wore a flowing, seamless white dress with a white veil that covered her hair. Her hands were clasped in front of her in a gesture of prayer, her slender fingers pointing toward heaven. The woman was barefoot as an ordinary villager would be, but the complexion of her skin was flawless so perfect in texture that Alphonsine couldn't determine its color. As the beautiful figure drifted toward the girl, her feet never touched the ground. Waves of love emanated from the majestic lady, embracing Alphonsine like the loving arms of a mother. The apprehension she'd felt moments before evaporated, and her heart filled with unimaginable joy. Sensing that she was in the presence of the divine, she fell to her knees and asked, Who are you? I am the mother of the word. You are the mother of the word? Alphonsine repeated. She didn't fully understand the meaning of the phrase, but she was now certain that she was kneeling before the mother of God. My name is Alphonsine, she added happily, feeling surprisingly comfortable in the lady's presence and blessed beyond belief that the Virgin Mary had chosen to speak with her. Of all the things in heaven, what makes you happy? I love God and I love his mother who gave us their son, Jesus, who has saved us. Alphonsine immediately said. Really? The lady replied, sounding very pleased with the teen's simple answer. Oh, yes, truly. If that is true, then know that I have heard your prayers and I am here to console you. I want your friends and schoolmates to have your faith, for they do not have enough. Mother, if it's really you and you've come to our school to tell us to have more faith, you must truly love us. It's such a great joy to see you with my own eyes. The Virgin asked Alphonsine to join the Legion of Mary, a Catholic group whose members dedicate their lives 
to live as the Holy Mother had, simply, humbly, and prayerfully, glorifying the name of God through their actions. Alphonsine agreed to do so right away. Mary then stated that she wanted to be loved and trusted by people everywhere so that she could lead lost souls to salvation through Jesus. Now watch as I return to heaven to be with my son, she said with a smile, ascending slowly upward and vanishing into the clouds' dwindling light. Alphonsine toppled onto the floor where she lay in semi-consciousness for more than ten minutes. When she opened her eyes, she saw the faces of her classmates peering down at her. Some were shaking her shoulders to try to rouse her, while others peppered her with questions about what had happened. After the sweet music of the beautiful lady's words, the schoolgirl's voices screeched in Alphonsine's ears, and she broke into tears, realizing that she was no longer in the warm light of the Queen of Heaven. She tried to push herself to her feet, but she had no strength. All she could do was sprawl on the floor, disoriented and confused. During her apparition, Alphonsine had been completely oblivious to her surroundings. Throughout the entire episode, her schoolmates had gawked in disbelief as she knelt on the floor, stared at the ceiling, and talked into thin air. And that was the first of the apparitions. And what happened afterward? Alphonsine was naturally asked about what happened, so she explained. This prompted a mix of reactions, and some of her schoolmates immediately began taunting her. In particular, she was taunted by a girl named Marie-Claire Mumokangango, who was one of the most popular girls in the school. One girl accused her of trying to gain sympathy because she came from a broken home. Some thought that she was trying to win the teacher's sympathy because her grades were not good. Marie-Claire accused her of performing a voodoo ritual she learned in her hometown of Kibongo, which was rumored to be filled with sorcerers and Satanists. And some thought that she had been possessed by demons back in Kibongo. Some of the girls, including Marie-Claire, called Alphonsine a witch and demanded that she perform magic tricks for them. And when she was having visions, some girls made a game of trying to toss rosaries over her head and lasso her neck like playing a carnival ring toss game. And what was the attitude of the school authorities? Some were open, but the director of the school gave her a very stern talking to about the seriousness of claiming to have a private revelation. The director ordered her to make a public statement before the school staff and students and deny that she had received a revelation. This reduced Alphonsine to tears, but she refused to make such a statement and insisted that the Virgin Mary had appeared to her. When did the second apparition occur? The next day, which was the first Sunday of Advent, the season before Christmas. While being taunted by other students, Alphonsine again fell into a vision, and the lady appeared to her once more. My child, I love you, the Virgin told Alphonsine in her soothing, lyrical voice. Never be afraid of me. In fact, play with me. I love children who will play with me because it shows me their love and trust. Be as a little child with me, for I love to pet my children. No child should fear his or her mother, and I am your mother. You should never be afraid of me. You should always love me as I love you. This was a short vision, but it was encouraging, and encouragement was something Alphonsine needed while experiencing the mocking of her classmates. The apparitions continued through December 1981, especially on Saturdays, and they continued to occur when Alphonsine was in the presence of students and the nuns that ran the school. 
Many of the girls continued to mock her, but others were curious and asked what the Virgin Mary told her. Alphonsine replied, She loves all the girls in the school and wants us all to love her. She doesn't want us to think of her as a strict teacher, but as a mom who really loves us and wants us to play with her. Because she loves us so much, she wants us to have more faith in God. During Advent, we should reflect upon the return of Jesus. She told me that her son will return to earth soon, and that our souls must be prepared for his arrival. The world is in a very bad way, with a lot of hatred and sin, so she wants us to say the rosary every day to cleanse our hearts and show our love for her, for Jesus, and for God. She says that praying the rosary is the best way to show her our love. And word about the apparition started to spread outside the school and into neighboring villages and regions. Immaculee Ilibagiza reports, All this attention infuriated the administration of Kibeho High School, as well as the local clergy who thought that an attention-seeking teenager had turned the school and parish into a national laughingstock. They worried that the longer this carried on, the worse the embarrassment would be when the girl was exposed as a fraud. In an effort to silence Alphonsine, one of the priests even gave Marie Claire the go-ahead to torment the visionary further. The older girl almost gleefully helped organize groups of students to physically abuse Alphonsine during her apparitions. They pulled her hair, twisted her fingers, pinched her skin as hard as they could, screamed into her ears, and shone a powerful flashlight into her open eyes. Alphonsine never blinked, winced, or flinched, no matter what they did. When she was in ecstasy, she was impervious to pain and unaware of her physical environment. One day, Marie-Claire held a burning candle under Alphonsine's right arm, which Alphonsine didn't react to. The Virgin had to ask her, My child, do you know that they are burning your arm? This is the one time Alphonsine reacted to a tormentor and pulled her arm away. But the Blessed Mother hadn't specified which arm was being burned, so Alphonsine pulled away her left one, giving Marie-Claire no satisfaction as she continued to hold a flame against the visionary's skin without results. In mid-December, the priest who assigned Marie-Claire the mission to expose Alphonsine stuck a needle several inches long deep into the young visionary's arm during an apparition. To no avail, Alphonsine just kept chatting happily with Mary. As a result of the opposition she was now facing, Alphonsine began praying for the Virgin Mary to appear to other girls in the school as well so that they'd believe her. And another girl began receiving visions. Her name was Anathali Mukamazimpaka. She was 17 years old, and she had a reputation as one of the most devout girls in the whole school. She was a member of the Legion of Mary and other Catholic youth groups. She read the Bible and prayed the rosary every day and never missed Mass. On Tuesday, January 12, 1982, Anathali found herself suddenly overcome by the same mix of joy and fear that Alphonsine had experienced. So she went to her dormitory and began to pray the rosary. A few other girls were praying it with her when suddenly everything went dark. Anathalie shut her eyes and prayed that whatever was happening to her would stop. When she opened them again, she noted a blush of light on a distant horizon. It provided enough illumination for her to see she was no longer in the dormitory with the other girls, but standing in a meadow of oddly colored flowers and grass that stretched out endlessly before her. Thousands of transparent red circles floated in the air around her, like little soap bubbles bursting into soft explosions of crimson mist. 
The strange surroundings filled her with such confusion that she began to cry. Through her tears, she saw a white sphere descending from above that emitted such an intense light she had to shield her eyes. An unseen woman spoke to Anathalie from the light, and she sounded so forlorn that the girl thought her heart would break. My child, the voice said, I am sad because I have sent a message and no one will listen to my words as I desire. The anguish the woman expressed was so wrenching that it made Anathalie cry harder. Although she saw only the light, the girl was certain that the Blessed Mother was speaking to her, and her sorrow clawed at the girl's heart. It is my wish for you to cry as you do now, the voice explained. Your tears are punishment. Not because you have sinned against me, but to serve as a reminder that I can punish those who choose to ignore my messages. My child, you must pray, for the world is in a horrible way. People have turned from God and the love of my son, Jesus. Mary then proceeded to map out what Anathalie's future would be if the young visionary volunteered to live her life in the service of the Lord. So many souls are running to ruin that I need your help to turn them back to my son. As long as you are on earth, you have to contribute to the salvation of souls. If you work with me, I shall give you a mission to lead those lost souls back from the darkness. Because the world is bad, my child, you will suffer. So if you accept this mission, you must also accept all the sufferings I send you with love, joy, and patience. The Holy Mother told Anathalie that, along with any pain she would endure, she must lead a life of mortification too, a life of discipline, humility, prayer, and denial of the body and its appetites. No one goes to heaven without suffering, and as a child of Mary, you may never put down the cross you bear, she stated. I accept, Mother, Anathalie replied through her tears. I accept my mission willingly. Then the Blessed Virgin told Anathalie what she told another messenger, Bernadette of Lourdes, many years earlier. I cannot promise you happiness in this world, but I can promise you eternal happiness in the next world. At the end of Anathalie's first vision of the Blessed Mother, Mary told her to find a copy of the book, The Imitation of Christ, open it to a random page, and plant the first words she read deeply into her heart. Now I will leave you, the Virgin said, but clasp your rosary tightly in your hand and kneel in order that I may bless you, my child. As Anathalie knelt, the light around her brightened, and for a fleeting moment she saw the shadow of a woman standing in front of her and making the sign of the cross. Then darkness returned, and the schoolgirl was alone. And when Anathalie got a copy of Thomas Akempis's classic spiritual work, The Imitation of Christ, and opened it at random, the first words she saw were, The things of this world are short-lived, but heaven's wealth is eternal a message she took as confirmation of what the Virgin had told her about the difficulties of this life giving way to the happiness of heaven. And this was only the first vision Anathalie received. She went on to have others also. How did the girls react now that Anathalie was receiving visions? Many of them reconsidered and came to believe that the Virgin Mary was appearing at the school. Alphonsine was known as a poor student, but Anathalie was one of the most pious students there, and having her also begin receiving visions cast things in a new light. Anathalie and Alphonsine even publicly took hands and knelt in prayer as an affirmation that they were both receiving visions of the Virgin Mary. However, this didn't convince everybody. The school director, who'd assumed Alphonsine was mentally ill, now worried that her school had become a target for the devil. Marie Claire, always Alphonsine's greatest detractor, declared war on Anathalie as well, 
accusing the two girls of forming a diabolical plot to gain national attention. She began spying on Anathalie and Alphonsine, reading their letters and diaries when they were away from the dorm and watching them closely day and night for signs of collusion. Because of this, Alphonsine and Anathalie avoided each other so as not to draw suspicion or accusation. And while both girls continued to receive regular apparitions, they were always at different times. Marie Claire was so incensed by what was happening that she personally complained about the false visionaries to the head of the local archdiocese, Bishop Jean-Baptiste Gahamani. When the bishop told the impetuous girls that he'd already spoken to Alphonsine and that the situation was being monitored, she only became angrier. Marie Claire was older than the other girls. Having been born in 1961, she was now 20 years old, and she was a blunt and outspoken person. But she was also popular and had been elected class president multiple times. She only got to torment Alphonsine and Anathalie for a few weeks, however, because on Monday, March 1st, 1982, she had a very unusual experience. She was walking in the school garden between classes when... Instead of being outside in the sunshine, she was now in the dark, with no idea where she was. The air stank with an odor of human waste and decaying flesh, so disgusting she wanted to vomit. She got to her feet and ran blindly through the darkness, hoping that she was heading toward the school. She banged into the main door, and when she flung it open, the putrid stench disappeared, and the daylight returned. She ran into the dormitory and found herself standing in front of Alphonsine, who was having an apparition and chatting amicably with the Holy Mother. Marie Claire looked down at her clothes and found that they were soaking wet. That's when she realized that two classmates were holding her up by her arms and walking her toward her bed. Did I fall into the stream? She asked, thinking she must have bashed her head and hallucinated. The girls gave their friend a queer look and told her they'd found her lying semi-conscious in the school chapel. And it turned out that Marie Claire had been passed out in the chapel for most of the afternoon. That night, she began writing a letter to her mother, saying that she felt ill and wanted to come home and rest. But she'd only written a few words when she again lost consciousness and was back in the dark. But this time, she wasn't alone. Two menacing figures approached her from the shadows. Marie Claire couldn't clearly identify who was standing in front of her, but they hovered in the darkness like specters. When they spoke, their wheezing voices were threatening. More of us were supposed to come for you tonight, but they haven't arrived, said one. But we'll be back. We're never far away, said the other, and then they both vanished. Marie Claire rubbed her eyes, only to discover that she was on the floor of the school chapel, surrounded by classmates, including Alphonsine, who handed her a little statue of Our Lady of Lourdes. Keep her with you to protect you from the evil one, Alphonsine said. Last night, when the Blessed Mother appeared to me, she warned me that the devil was planning to attack students at the school. She says we can protect ourselves from the enemy by wearing our rosaries. Afterwards, her classmates told her that she had experienced some kind of seizure, then gotten up and run into the chapel where she collapsed. But Marie Claire wasn't convinced that this was an experience from God. Marie Claire shook her head in disbelief and looked down at the statue Alphonsine had given her. All this is the fault of those phony visionaries. I told you they'd bring us trouble. If demons are haunting this school, it's because of Alphonsine's voodoo, she replied angrily. The next day, while learning about the children of Fatima in their religious studies class, Marie Claire felt another blackout coming on. As she'd already done twice, within 24 hours, she opened her eyes and found herself somewhere she didn't recognize. This time she wasn't in the dark, though. She was standing beneath a rainbow-colored sky, 
in an open field of perfectly manicured grass. Each blade bent from the weight of fat drops of dew that caught colors of the sky like a million crystal prisms. Marie Claire caught her breath. It was the prettiest thing she'd ever seen. But the beauty didn't calm her down. She could think of two explanations for what was happening to her, and neither was good. Either she was going insane, or the devil had taken possession of her senses. Then out of nowhere, a soft voice called out her last name. Mukangongo. Marie Claire spun around, her fist clenched and poised in front of her like a boxer. She thought that the specters who'd accosted her the previous night had returned to finish her off. She looked around in every direction, but only saw the endless sea of shimmering grass. She responded wordlessly to the voice by raising her fists higher and planting her feet firmly on the grass. Mukangongo, the voice called again. No one had ever said Marie Claire's name so sweetly. The tender voice, like that of a loving mother, was as soothing as a lullaby. But the girl was distrustful and answered the voice with a challenge. Okay, you found me. I am Mukangongo. I'm here and I'm ready to fight. So, yes, Marie Claire actually challenged the Virgin Mary to a fist fight. With an affectionate laugh, the voice asked, Why would you want to fight me, my child? What is making you so afraid? Never be afraid of your mother. At that moment, Marie Claire realized with certainty that it was the Holy Mother who was speaking to her. I thought the devils who haunted me in the night had returned to take me away, she admitted. Oh no, my poor child, Mary said reassuringly. There is no need to be afraid of them. I promise the things of the night that threatened you will not frighten you again. The Blessed Mother then asked Marie Claire to sing a song for her using words Jesus spoke during his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evils against you because of me. The words made Marie Claire feel ashamed because they described her treatment of Alphonsine and Anathalie to a T. She'd insulted and persecuted the visionaries for doing what Mary had told them to do, encouraging people to give their hearts to Jesus. Please, child, sing the song for me, the Virgin requested again. No, I won't, Marie Claire replied. I, I don't have a good singing voice. Then I will ask your sister to sing with you, Mary said sounding amused at the young woman's excuse. Suddenly, Marie Claire saw Anathalie beside her, looking up at Mary. Marie Claire followed Anathalie's gaze, but couldn't see Our Lady. However, she could still hear her beautiful voice. Sing this song with your sister. Yes, Mother, Anathalie agreed with a smile. She took Marie Claire's hand in hers, and together they sang to the Virgin. As the song ended, Mary said farewell to the girls and Marie Claire realized that she was lying on the chapel floor again, too exhausted to say anything to the classmates who were looking down at her in disbelief. After this, Marie Claire's attitude towards Alphonsine and an athlete was completely revolutionized. The young woman was in a constant state of prayer after her apparition, kneeling for hours and praying the rosary, begging the Holy Mother for forgiveness. She recanted every accusation she'd made about Alphonsine and an athlete, and swore that she'd devote her life to serving God. Her rude, brusque, and aggressive manner had essentially vanished overnight, and as passing years would prove, would never return. Marie Claire was a perfect example of the spiritual conversion the Blessed Mother had been calling for since first appearing to Alphonsine. Wow, this has been amazing so far. And uh, before we move on to the next part of our discussion, I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including 
Rock K, Pierre M, Carolyn S, Father Brian H, and Stephanie L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. So, Jimmy, what happened after Marie Claire received these visions? Like the other two, Marie Claire continued to receive new visions, and in one of them, the Virgin Mary showed her a black rosary known as the Rosary of the Seven Sorrows. This was a devotion that originated with the Servite Order. It involves seven sorrowful things that Mary experienced as the mother of Jesus, from the prophecy of Simeon that a sword would pierce her own soul, to seeing Jesus laid in his tomb. It was promoted by the Servite Order in the 1300s during the time of the Black Death, when so much of Europe was experiencing sorrows. But it hadn't been common in recent times, and almost nobody knew about it. Marie Claire, in particular, did not know about it. But Mary asked her to undertake a mission to reintroduce it and repopularize it, which she did. Mary also requested that a chapel be built at Cabejo as a sign of remembrance for the private revelations given there. And what was happening with the response to the visionaries, both in the school and more broadly? Needless to say, they were growing in popularity now that you had the three visionaries in the school all in agreement. Alphonsine, the original visionary, Anathalie, one of the most pious girls in the school, and Marie Claire, the popular girl who had viciously tormented the first two. Now that all three were in agreement that the Virgin Mary was appearing, this made a lot of people conclude that that's exactly what was happening. And word of this began to spread not only in Cabejo or the surrounding region, but all over Rwanda. As a result, people began coming from all over the country to see the visionaries and crowds start, started gathering at the school. Many of these people had made difficult journeys on foot to get there, incurring physical hardship like getting cuts and bruises on their feet because they didn't have shoes, and they trekked through difficult and sometimes dangerous territory with a pre-modern road system. As you'll recall, at the time, Cabejo didn't have a road leading to it that was capable of handling anything more than a donkey. So how was word spreading about the apparitions? What, what was letting the pilgrims know to come there? Initially, it was word of mouth, but with time, people started making audio recordings of the seers having conversations with the Virgin Mary. At the time, there were no smartphones, so they'd use audio cassettes, and then they'd play these back for people in their own villages. Sometimes local priests would play them for groups of, of people in their congregations. And while there was no internet back in the 1980s, there were radio stations, and Rwandan radio started playing tapes of the visionaries. And whether people heard the tapes on the radio or not, once news of what was going on in Cabejo reached their village, people would discuss it with their friends and families, and it would be the talk of the town. So lots of people heard about the visionaries and started coming to Cabejo. What kinds of things was Mary reported to be showing in the visions? It varied from seer to seer. For example, in March of 1982, the original seer, Alphonsine, was invited to travel with Mary to a special place, 
This event has been referred to as a mystical journey, and it was to take place on Alphonsine's birthday. But she needed to get ready for it first because it would take some time. It would begin late on Saturday the 16th, and she would return on Sunday the 16th, the Sunday being Alphonsine's birthday. And the girl would be in a deep trance for this period, so she needed to let people know what was happening in advance. As a result, Mary gave Alphonsine special instructions to give to the director of the school. Specifically, Don't bury me. My body will look dead, and you'll think that I'm dead, but please don't bury me. And that's not unreasonable, because in remote villages in the developing part of the world, they often don't have access to doctors or good medical technology. So if someone appears to die, they don't have a scientific way of verifying it, and they need to act accordingly. It was the same everywhere in previous centuries, and premature burial was a worry people had. And yes, in response to listener demand, we will be talking about premature burial in the future, as well as the steps people took to avoid it. I just need to think of the right way to tell the story without making it too scary. In any event, the school's director was surprised by Alphonsine's instructions. Where did you say she was taking you? The director asked. Heaven. Alphonsine answered. At least, I think we're going to heaven. Mom didn't say exactly, but I had the feeling when she was talking to me. She also said to tell you that even though my body will look dead, you shouldn't be frightened because I'll be fine. My body will be here, but I'll be away until Sunday. The director nodded, promising her student that no one would be allowed to bury her, at least until after the weekend. On Saturday, Alphonsine failed to show up for the evening meal, and when a nun went to check on her, she found her lying on her bed in the dormitory, asleep with her hands folded on her chest. The nun could not wake her. In fact, no matter how much the nun tried, she couldn't make Alphonsine move at all, and she feared Alphonsine was dead, so they summoned the school nurse. They also summoned Abbot Augustine Misago, who would later become a bishop and would be the bishop to approve the apparitions. So he was an eyewitness for this particular event. The medical practitioners worked quickly to first ensure that Alphonsine had indeed not died as the nun who found her had been convinced was the case. They concluded that the young woman was alive, but barely. Her pulse rate was impossibly slow. Her blood pressure was low her, and her breathing was virtually non-existent. In fact, her chest rose and fell imperceptibly only once or twice a minute, just enough to supply the oxygen needed to support life. Despite determining that Alphonsine was alive and seemingly well, everyone in the room felt that they were staring at a corpse. Four men tried rolling her onto her side, but they couldn't move her. They attempted to separate her hands, but no matter how hard they pulled, her fingers remained clasped together. Two more men joined the attempt. After all six had strained with all their might to lift the slim teenager from the bed, they gave up in frustration. Abbot Misago would later say that it was like trying to lift a 200-pound slab of granite, and the nurse insisted that Alphonsine's limbs were so immovably locked in position that if she hadn't been breathing, the nurse would have concluded rigor mortis had set in. Further testing was done to assess the girl's reflexes and pain impulses. Her skin was pinched, her hair was tugged, and needles were even stuck into her skin and beneath her fingernails. Her response was always the same. She didn't respond at all. The conclusion was that Alphonsine had either entered a level of sleep so deep that it resembled a coma, or she was truly comatose. 
the adults in the room decided to take shifts watching over the catatonic teen throughout the night. So they watched her, and 18 hours later, on Sunday, her birthday, she woke up. She shared the details of what she saw with the commission the local bishop had set up to investigate the apparitions, but she also told some of her schoolmates what she had seen. The first place Mary took me was dark and very frightening, she began. It was filled with shadows and groans of sadness and pain. She called it the place of despair, where the road leading away from God's light ends. Our travels were many. We moved across the stars until we arrived in a place of golden light filled with happiness and laughter and songs sung by so many joyous voices that I thought the souls of all the people who once had lived were floating around singing praises to God. But as in the place of despair, I couldn't see anyone. I could only hear their voices. I asked Mary why she wouldn't let me see the people who were so happy. You cannot see what is here while you are still living below, she told me. But whoever those people were could see me. A young voice, too young for me to know if it was a boy or a girl, cried out to me with such friendliness and love that I felt like weeping. Alphonsine, it sang out, it's you. It's Alphonsine of Cabejo who has seen the Blessed Virgin. You are blessed. I was like you. I too could see and was persecuted for my visions. Have faith and confidence in the Blessed Mother, for she will protect you. Then my eyes opened, and I was in my bed with the happiness of that place flowing through my body. Later, on Saturday, October 30th, 1982, the second seer, Anathali, had a very similar experience. It also lasted for hours, and once again, they were afraid she was dead. So they performed tests to make sure she wasn't. And afterwards, she also spoke of being taken on a mystical journey to otherworldly regions. The first was a world where, instead of mountains, hills, and valleys, the landscape was comprised of varying shades of vivid color and light, and people traveled from place to place by sliding through the light. Mary led Anathali to one strange land illuminated only by white light. Here, the girl saw seven handsome men wearing white cloaks and standing in a circle, and they were creating the most beautiful music without any instruments. Each note was filled with a different sensation of contentment and joy. She asked, Where are we, mother? This is Isangongo. The focal point, this is the place of communion. Who are those men? They are not men, they are angels. What do they do here? They praise God, watch over earth, and aid humanity when they are needed or called upon. Anathalie and the Queen of Heaven then floated to three different worlds, each of which was bathed in its own unique color and light. But the vividness of the color and intensity of the light diminished the further they traveled from the angels. At the next place, the young lady saw millions of people dressed in white. All of them seemed overwhelmingly happy, but not blissful, as the angels had been. Our lady told me that this was Isendezra Zaibyashimo, the place of the cherished of God, Anathalie explained. And then we moved on to our next destination, a world where the light was as dim as dusk. Below us were people dressed in clothes of dreary and duller colors, in comparison to the other worlds we'd seen. Most of them seemed content, but many seemed quite sad, and were even suffering. Mary said, This is Isis in Gurwa, a place of purification. The people you see are Interambirwa, those who persevere. The last place we visited was a land of twilight, where the only illumination was an unpleasant shade of red that reminded me of congealed blood. The heat that rose from that world was stifling and dry. It brushed my face like a flame, and I feared that my skin would blister and crack. 
I couldn't look at the countless people who populated that unhappy place because their misery and anguish pained me so greatly. Mary didn't have to say the name of this place. I knew I was in hell. The next things I remember were someone laying me down in my bed and the Blessed Virgin above me telling me to spend two days reflecting in silence on what I'd seen. Do not meditate on the angels you saw. They are not from this world, she said before explaining to me the nature of the other three places she'd shown me. The first place, the happy world of the cherished of God, was reserved for people whose hearts were good, who pray regularly, and who strive always to follow God's will. Our second visit to the place of purification was for those who called on God only during times of trouble, turning away from him when their troubles were over. The last place of heat and no name was for those who never paid God any attention at all. Between these two mystical journeys, on August 15, 1982, another dramatic event happened. It was the Feast of the Assumption of Mary, and there was a huge crowd. Reportedly, more than 20,000 people had come to Cabejo to see the visionaries. They had a platform for the visionaries to stand on, and the first visionary to get up was Alphonsine. When she entered a state of ecstasy, she tried singing a song of welcome to the Virgin, but Mary interrupted her. I am too sad to hear my children sing, the Blessed Mother told her. Alphonsine tried repeatedly to sing the welcome song, and the Virgin Mary kept stopping her. Eventually, Alphonsine asked why Mary didn't want to listen to the song. The Virgin was silent for some time and then burst into tears. Why are you crying, darling? Alphonsine asked Mary, frightened and concerned. Why do you show me your tears? What do they mean, Mother? Your sadness hurts me. I should be the one crying, not you. The Virgin Mary responded by shedding even more tears. Mother, please, Alphonsine begged. Why don't you answer me? I can't bear to see you so upset. Please don't cry. Oh, Mother, I can't even reach up to console you or dry your eyes. What has happened that makes you so sad? You won't let me sing to you when you refuse to talk to me. Please, Mother, I've never seen you cry before, and it terrifies me. Eventually, Mary asked her to sing a different song, and the lyrics of this one were disturbing. They ran, People are not grateful. They don't love me. I came from heaven for nothing. I left all the good things there for nothing. My heart is full of sadness. My child, show me the love. You love me. Come closer to my heart. Reluctantly, Alphonsine sang the song, and afterwards she said, Mother, you're still weeping. Please tell me what's making you cry, Alphonsine said, abruptly ending the song. Remember when you promised me that you'd give me anything I asked you for? Well, I'm asking this of you now. Please don't cry. Many minutes passed in silence as Alphonsine listened and received the message Mary wanted her to share. Then the girl said, Yes, Mother, I will repeat it exactly as you ask me to. To the people of Earth you say three times, You open the door and they refuse to come in. You open the door and they refuse to come in. You open the door and they refuse to come in. Yes, Mother, I'm telling them you say that you saw the world in a bad state and you came to save us, but we refuse to listen. But Mother, we're only human. What can we do? The visionary asked, and then listened intently to the response she received. Yes, I know, she continued, but it's hard to make them understand. The words and songs you just told me to share are difficult for many to understand. Some grasp their meaning, but others don't. Some just won't listen. Mother, you should speak to the people yourself, for we are not wise enough to deliver your messages. When we tell folks what you ask us to say to them, 
They call us crazy. They say we've gone mad, Alphonsine went on. Yes, I will continue to tell them. You want me to ask them three times. What are they waiting for? What are they waiting for? What are they waiting for? The virgin then asked her to sing The Queen of Heaven and Earth, a song she'd personally taught Alphonsine. The song's lyrics tell people how and why they must repent and pray, and Our Lady asked the visionary to repeat one phrase of the song seven times, so we can help Jesus to save the world. Suddenly, Alphonsine let out a gut-wrenching scream that cut through the startled crowd like a razor. I see a river of blood! What does that mean? No, please! Why did you show me so much blood? Show me a clear stream of water, not this river of blood! The seer cried out as the Holy Mother revealed one horrifying vision after another. The young woman was subjected to so many images of destruction, torture, and savage human carnage that she pleaded, Stop! Please stop! Why, Mother? Why are you showing me this? The trees are exploding into flames. The country is burning. Please, Mother, you're scaring me. Oh, no. No. Why are those people killing each other? Why do they chop each other? I'm not a strong enough person to watch people killing each other. Tears gushed from Alphonsine's eyes as she trembled uncontrollably at the scenes unraveling before her. She summoned a hymn to her lips, trying to sing the images away, but she soon fell silent, as though frozen in fear. Mary was revealing even more dreadful images to her. For example, the girl was now staring at a growing pile of severed human heads, which were still gushing blood. The grotesque sight worsened still as Our Lady expanded Alphonsine's vision until she beheld a panoramic view of a vast valley piled high with the remains of a million rotting, headless corpses, and not a single soul was left alive to bury the dead. The Blessed Mother was warning the crowd gathered in front of the visionary of the horror that awaited Rwanda. Because remember, people nearby were hearing the visionaries half of the conversation with Mary during the vision. So they could get the gist of what was happening and hearing that a really frightening revelation was underway. Needless to say, many of the parents in the crowd decided to make a hasty exit to keep their children from hearing such disturbing things. As the vision began to fade, Mary asked the stricken Alphonsine to sing another song, this time repeating two lines of a verse seven times each. First, there will be fire that will come from beneath the earth and consume everything on earth. And then, the day you will come to take those who have served you, God, we beg you to have mercy on us. How am I supposed to sleep tonight after you showed me all these horrible things? The young woman wailed. How will I ever sleep again? Alphonsine then prayed that what she'd been shown would never come to pass, not in Rwanda or anywhere in God's world. She prayed for all the people she knew and then for all the people she didn't know, asking Jesus to shelter them from such evil. She sang one more song pleading for Christ to be merciful and forgive sinners, and then she collapsed on the podium. People in the crowd naturally wondered what would happen when the other two seers got up. But it wasn't any different. Both Anathalie and Marie Claire received similarly frightening visions. Immaculee Ilibagiza reports, But as visionary after visionary stepped onto the podium that day, each received the same images from the weeping virgin. For hours, their horrified cries echoed through the hills, describing rivers of blood, savage murders, and the putrefying remains of hundreds of thousands of people. For some, it must have seemed terrifyingly obvious that the seers were speaking about Rwanda. And she was speaking about Rwanda, because within a few years, the terrifying vision the three seers had received 
would come true, and one of the three seers would lose her life in the violence. That's what we'll talk about next time. Okay, so Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers as we wait for next time? Well, once again, we'll have a link to where you can support the charity that's sponsoring our show today. You can support it by going to sqpn.com slash help Africa. We'll also have a link to Immaculee Ilibagiza's book, Our Lady of Cabejo, and a link to one of her other books called Left to Tell, Discovering God Amidst the Rwandan Holocaust. We'll also have a book, uh, a link to a book by Philip Gurevich uh, called We Wish to Inform You That Tomorrow We Will Be Killed With Our Families, Stories from Rwanda. The title of the book is from a letter that was sent by a group of ministers to like one of the leaders in their denomination, and it is self-explanatory. We wish to inform you that tomorrow we will be killed with our families. So it's very dramatic. We'll also have a link to the full text of the Bishop's Declaration approving the Cabejo apparition, so you can read that, as well as the Vatican document on evaluating private revelations and how the Church does that. We'll have a link to a page on Miracle Hunter about the apparitions, also a link to uh, some of the messages that were received at Cabejo, a shorter summary of the bishop's approval, and also general information on Our Lady of Cabejo, a short video on the apparitions that you can watch, a short video on the 1994 Rwandan genocide, as well as information about background on the Seven Sorrows Rosary and a devotional guide so you can pray the Seven Sorrows Rosary yourself. Excellent. All right. So we promised at the top of the show that we would have feedback, mysterious feedback from you on our recent episodes on Noah's Ark and the Great Flood. And I want to first remind you that you can leave audio feedback on our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. So, Jimmy, did you have something you want to talk about before we got into the feedback? Yeah, one of the things I did last year at the end of the year was do a kind of informal survey on social media of what people's favorite episodes during the year were. And so I did that again this time, and we had about 200 people respond. And after letting the survey be up for a week, I harvested the results and then I tabulated them. And uh, we'll have a link to where you can view the results as well as some analysis I did of them. It's now uh, everything. So what we did in the survey was I asked people to name their three favorite episodes. And, you know, people frequently say, oh, it's so so hard to decide. So I figured three, you know, rather than one. Um, And uh, everything got votes. So every episode of the year was in somebody's top three. And in fact, none of the episodes received less than three votes. So actually, everything was in at least three people's top three. The number one episode of the year by a notable margin was Border Patrol Ghost. And it was closely or somewhat closely followed by the 9-11 conspiracy episodes, Pauline Dakin and the Weird World, uh, D.B. Cooper and Gloria Ramirez, the so-called toxic lady. Those were the top five. And you can take a look at them uh, at the link. I also went a little further and did some analysis. Now, 
one of the things I did was I looked at which mysteries were paranormal, which mysteries were religious, and which mysteries were just normal that didn't involve substantial paranormal or religious elements. And I was really surprised to see, okay, Border Patrol Ghost, our number one episode, that was a paranormal mystery because it involves a ghost. But the other four of the top five, 9-11, Pauline Dakin, D.B. Cooper, and Gloria Ramirez, those were all purely natural mysteries. So I thought that was a nice illustration of how if you if you've got a compelling story, even if it's purely natural, it can still make a really gripping mystery. Also, in looking at this, uh, the religious mysteries tended to do better than the paranormal ones, which is not surprising since the audience is mostly religious. But uh, I was pleased to see how there's a nice mix of the three different groups. And in particular, I was pleased to see how well the uh, normal mysteries did. Another thing I did, because we've talked about the use of two-parters, like the current mystery on the show, and so um, I'm currently trying to do one two-part mystery a month and two one-part mysteries a month in the scheduling. It may not always work out that way, but that's what I'm shooting for. And so I did a second analysis where I highlighted the mysteries that involved two-parters, and they clustered towards the more popular end of the spectrum of mysteries. And so um, I think that was a nice affirmation of the fact that if you've got a mystery that warrants uh, that much information, that warrants doing a two-parter, that won't stop it from being in the top half of being popular. Another thing I did was, because I think very consciously, and people have commented on the storytelling techniques we use here on the show, and I think very consciously about those, I always, even if it's a mystery on like a scientific topic or something, I always try, or a religious topic, I try to find a way to storify it, to put in some aspects of storytelling, even if it's not just being driven by a story even if it's more topical. And so uh, another analysis I did was highlighting the story-focused mysteries. And as you'd expect, they did tend to cluster towards the more popular set of mysteries. Uh, there was actually pretty good distribution. There were a lot of topical mysteries in there too. But on balance, the story-focused mysteries um, did tend to be somewhat more popular. And so that would be something I would expect because people are wired for stories. A, an additional one, uh, an additional analysis that I'm currently doing is uh, thinking about the effect that recency may have on the results. Because if you're thinking back over the whole year of the podcast, your memories of the most recent episodes are going to be more vivid than your mystery, than your memories of the mysteries we covered a year ago. And so it that could affect the results somewhat. And so I'm currently uh, doing a highlight where I highlight the most recent mysteries and or highlight the mysteries by how recent they are. And the results of that will also be at the link that we'll provide. Excellent. It's really fascinating. I love to see how people enjoy the show. We have such a breadth of an audience that it ha they have all kinds of interests, and that's really nice. So we want to get to our, your mysterious feedback, and our first feedback is some audio from listener Tim, and here it is. 
Hey, Dom and Jimmy. I'm Tim from St. Louis, Missouri. Love the podcast. While trying to soothe a newborn in the middle of the night, Jimmy's calm voice really helps me to remain calm. So thank you. Quick question on the second Noah's Flood episode. Jimmy mentioned that the human population never bottlenecked all the way down to eight people which makes perfect sense to me. But what does that tell us about Adam and Eve? I've been taught conflicting ideas about Adam and Eve. Some people say they had to be two literal specific people for original sin to have been committed, while others take a less literal approach. So were they two real people with names assigned later, people who committed that specific sinful act? Or could they have been an amalgamation of people? Or could they have been simply characters in a story meant to help us understand the deep theological reality of our creation? I've tried reading Humani Generis, but despite the fact that it was probably written in Italian, it's all Greek to me. Of course, we don't know about Adam and Eve is also an acceptable answer. I wish more people learned how to say we don't know or I don't know uh, and be able to distinguish objective fact from personal or popular opinion. Anyway, this one has always confused me, and I'd be curious to hear Jimmy's thoughts. Thanks, and keep up the amazing show. Well, uh, the good news is you'll be able to hear my thoughts at length because we're going to be having uh, Adam and Eve as one of the mysteries that we'll be covering this year. So I'll be discussing the different options you mentioned as well as an additional one um, and presenting the evidence from the faith and reason perspectives. Now, uh, Tim mentioned a document known as Humanae Generis. And for people who may not be familiar with what that is, it was an encyclical that was released by Pope Pi Pius XII in 1950. And in Humanae Generis, uh, Pius XII, as a disciplinary measure, said Catholics did not have the liberty to propose that Adam and Eve were, um, were, were anything other than the two original founders of the human race. But the situation has shifted since 1950. And if you do a careful study of church documents and related documents, there are more recent documents that indicate more liberty on this question. And not everybody's aware of those. Some people, especially people who are favorable towards the there's just the two original founders view, um, often stop with Humanae Generis, and they haven't really looked at the subsequent development. But we will be taking an unbiased look at the subsequent development uh, so that people can be aware of it and make their own decisions. Excellent. And uh, Ross sends an email. Love the podcast. Wouldn't the extensive genealogies before and after Noah lead us to believe that he was a historical person? They would to the degree that those genealogies are meant to be taken literally. Um, now, one of the options we covered was that Noah is based on a real historical person, even if the flood wasn't global. I mean, there have obviously been big floods at different periods in history and uh, and uh, people have survived them by God's providence, and Noah may be based on one of those people. And so uh, there, even though these are very early genealogies describing in a remote period in the past, it's possible that they contain accurate information. But um, the way you also have to be sensitive to the way genealogies worked in ancient Israel, they commonly did things like skip generations, 
um, because in Hebrew, the word for father also means grandfather and great-grandfather. Any male ancestor is a father. And so that makes it very easy to skip generations. That's why you can say Jesus is the son of David instead of the great, 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 something grandson of David. Another thing that happens in Hebrew genealogies is you can have posthumous adoptions. So like when somebody becomes a member of your of Israel, they need to be fitted into one of the 12 tribes. And so um, they will be posthumously, meaning after death, they will be ascribed to somebody's genealogy as like, okay, this guy is legally the son of this patriarch. And so that introduces an additional element that we wouldn't expect because we don't typically do that in genealogies today. And then when you study ancient Near Eastern genealogies, there also are figures in them where, like when two groups merge, they will um, say, well, we're now the same group, so we must have had a common ancestor. Let's give him a name. And then that becomes another aspect of the genealogy. And so when you the collective effect of all this is you can't read ancient genealogies from the Bible as if they're modern genealogies. They incorporate additional like legal and reconstructive elements that mean that you can't simply identify somebody and say, okay, well, this person was exactly the son of this person. They're they incorporate additional literary elements. And so given that this is the oldest set of genealogies that's describing a primeval period in Earth's history, there may be a large degree of reconstruction here, and we may not necessarily uh, be able to extract a lot of historical information from it. Okay. Adriana sent an email. During the reason portion of the Noah's Ark, Jimmy spent a lot of time examining the DNA evidence and animal diversity as major issues. Is there evidence or reasoning that the time of Noah could be pushed earlier in time before such animal diversity? Early in the evolutionary process before so much development of ecosystems and specialization of animals using standard evolutionary narrative, there would have been a time when that the original genomes would not be so diverse or widespread. If Noah happened earlier in Earth history, it would allow for all the evolutionary development of families and species that we analyze with DNA to happen post-flood without creating a new bottleneck. Well, Adriana is right that if you push the date of the flood back far enough, you get around the genetic diversity problem. I mean, if you push the flood all the way back to 3.5 billion years ago... Uh, when life started, well, Noah would have only needed to take, you know, one life form on the ark and they could easily fit inside the ark. The problem is Noah wouldn't have existed 3.5 billion years ago. And so the because humanity wasn't around. And so the the farther you go back, the more genetic diversity you eliminate, but also you make it harder to envision Noah being there. And I'll give a more recent example of this problem, um, lions and tigers. So the last common ancestor that lions and tigers had was about 4 million years ago. And so you could push the flood 4 million years ago um, in order to uh, allow a single large cat 
to be taken on the ark. But if you do that, you've got a problem because Homo, the group that we belong to, has only been around for about two and a half million years ago. So you wouldn't even have a member of Noah would wouldn't even be able to be a member of Homo. He would have been a member of a prior group, and that's very hard to believe. Um, I mean, when when people approach the text, they assume that Noah is a Homo sapiens sapiens, our subspecies, and that's certainly what the biblical author was envisioning. He wasn't envisioning Noah being a remoter ancestor, and that would create a time horizon just a few tens of thousands of years ago, at most, for a flood. Um, And if it's only a few tens of thousands of years ago, then you're not going to have substantial evolution and genetic diversification in all of the other species, and it won't get you around the problem of fitting everything on the ark. Um, also, the farther you push back the uh, the flood, the harder it is to imagine that traditions of it survived and to be recorded in Genesis. There are some traditions that humans have maintained for uh, for a few tens of thousands of years, but you get beyond that, and it, even that is going to be really hard to imagine substantial traditions of a flood surviving to be recorded in Genesis. Vera sent an email. In your explanations of the Great Flood, you stated that God could have used a miracle to quickly regrow the food supply after the flood to feed all the animals. But then you stated that there's no scientific evidence for that. I thought that was what a miracle was. A miracle is an occurrence that can't be explained by science or other cause. Could you please clarify? Yeah, sure. So um, a miracle is a situation where the ordinary... uh, Operations of nature that we study with science wouldn't explain an event, but the event nevertheless happens. And so miracles are real. They do happen. What we do on the show sometimes in considering things, we use both the faith and the reason perspective. And under the faith perspective, if you want, if you say, well, I believe this happened, therefore, there must have been this set of miracles. That's fine. Um, but it's not reason apart from faith that's telling you this is what happened. You're going beyond the reason perspective and you can do that. That is fine. I just want to make sure that people are aware of the differences between what the two perspectives are telling us. We have evidence from the reason perspective that needs to be taken into account, and it suggests that events unfolded one way, and we have, so we have evidence for events unfolding this way, like we just don't have geological evidence of a worldwide flood. Um, If you want to say there was one, and God somehow miraculously undid all the geological evidence that you would expect from that, well, you can do that, but you're going beyond the reason perspective, and so you should be aware that that's what's happening. Okay, Uh, Tim writes an email. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World constantly brings me back to my childhood. Everything from my interest in history and science to my love of good stories. But in no way does this bring me back to my youth more than Jimmy saying, so this will be a two-parter. It's the modern equivalent of having your favorite TV show throw up a to-be-continued at the end of an episode. Thankfully, unlike all those old shows, Jimmy's kind enough to tell us this at the beginning of the first episode. 
This way, there's no anxiety caused by wondering if you'll finish up in the remaining minutes. Instead, we know to buckle up and enjoy the ride. Love the show. Don't change a thing. Thank you very much, Tim. And as we mentioned in our analysis of the popular episodes of last year, uh, that seems to be borne out. Uh, many the the two-parters did tend to cluster towards the more popular end of the spectrum. And Philip sends an email. Thank you for a great presentation. I was a bit disappointed, however, that you mostly tackled the flood from a young Earth perspective. Many of your criticisms of a worldwide flood were based on the young Earth model, but I wonder if the theory might fare better if it were pushed further back. I still lean to think it was a more local flood, perhaps the flooding of the Mediterranean Valley into the Mediterranean Ocean and beyond a bit until the water subsided and just left the Mediterranean as it is. But I would have been interested to hear some of the points you criticized the world flood theory on with an old Earth model, as well as just the same to see how they fared there. Maybe a future revisit? Well, we will be revisiting uh, the Great Flood in future episodes and looking at particular possibilities uh, like stuff from the end of the Ice Age that could have uh, generated the tradition of the flood. Um, but I don't think that the um, that it really fares better from an old Earth perspective um, for the reasons we kind of discussed with genetic diversity. I, I mean, if you push it back far enough uh, and even then, you know, we don't have evidence uh, from an old Earth perspective of a global flood. Um, there may have been a time in Earth's history before the continents emerged. Um, that's something that I would need to do some further research on to see how solid the evidence is for the existence of such a period. Um, but if there was such a period, it was way before humanity. So as as we mentioned, um, if you've got Noah and his family there, and especially if they're Homo sapiens sapiens, the flood has to be within a few tens of thousands of years. And so the question of how much older the Earth might be than that doesn't uh, doesn't tend to factor into it. Mary writes on Facebook, love seeing all the threads of the flood story in various myths from different cultures, as well as seeing geological evidence, breakdown of end of Ice Age ice dams, maybe 13,000 years ago. And that's one of the possibilities we'll talk about in the future, um, because at the end of the last Ice Age, there were these ice dams that were holding back large bodies of water that had already thawed. And then at some point, enough of the ice dam thaws that it breaks and unleashes a catastrophic amount of water. And and that is close enough to generate traditions that could still be with us. So we definitely will be talking about that in the future. Mary Rose on Facebook writes, if Noah's Ark was based on one or more local floods, and if local floods still happen today, how are we supposed to understand God's promise to not destroy the earth by flood again? If there was never a global flood, that makes it seem like God's promising not to do something again, which he never did to begin with. Well, uh, I think that the resolution is fairly straightforward. The passage in at the end of the flood narrative where God makes a covenant with Noah and says, I'm never going to do this again, that should be understood as a promise that God will never send us a global flood. Now, the author of Genesis was aware that there had been these big floods, or at least one big flood, and he wasn't aware of anybody... Um, outside he wasn't he wasn't aware of the extent of it i mean if you're floating if if you're I mean, based on the traditions he had if you imagine 
I'm floating and I see water everywhere and I'm not seeing any mountains, well, then the logical conclusion or a logical conclusion is, oh, the whole world has been flooded. And so the um, the auth- the tradition bearers, the tradents that passed on these traditions, interpreted the earlier experience of a flood or more than one flood as being global. But what God is saying here is, I'm never going to wipe out the world with a flood. So we've got God's promise on that. The again aspect has to be understood relative to the original large flood or floods as interpreted as being global by the humans that experienced and survived them. Okay. Jim writes on Facebook, regarding the post-flood fanning out of species, such as koalas going to Australia but not Europe, the best I can do for people arguing the other side would be to point out that if there were only two of that animal and they immediately headed that direction, one would expect them to be more regional. However, the point about the plant life also needing to go ahead of them makes that argument problematic. Drop bears, on the other hand, they can feast on a wider range of food. Indeed, drop bears <laughs> have a distinct evolutionary advantage over regular koalas because they if you if you can only eat eucalyptus, that's a that that means you're very tied to eucalyptus trees. But if you can eat more kinds of food than that, then you have an evolutionary advantage in case eucalyptus trees become scarce. Mm, and uh, drop bears are omnivorous carnivores, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at least carnivores and maybe omnivores. <laughs> so uh, Robert writes on Facebook, I don't know how you did it, Jimmy and Dom, but I actually saw a rainbow while listening to this episode driving home today. Cool. Well, I hope that gave you some comfort as to how it happened. I'm afraid that will have to remain a mystery. Uh, Another Jim on Facebook writes, Jimmy, thank you so much for once again handling a potentially divisive topic with such grace. In my teenage years, many of my wonderful Christ-loving friends and youth leaders did not leave room for anything but a literal interpretation of the Bible's flood narrative. And at the time, I felt my faith was weak because my understanding of reason did not align with what I was reading or being told. As a teenager, it was clear to me that either my friends or I must be wrong. I grew out of that mentality, but I still witness that polarizing mentality among fellow Christians. Thanks for reminding us not to get bogged down with trying to figure out who's right. No matter how, where, or when the flood happened, we can rest assured that God's grace and love for us is what truly matters. Thank you, Jim. And I really try to uh, to make room for the different viewpoints. I mean, I may say, well, it looks like the evidence points more strongly in favor of this than that. But that's just my estimate. Um, you know, as long as people are careful in their evaluation of the evidence, like noting, OK, the scientific evidence does point this way, but I still think that the evidence of faith requires this interpretation. That's fine. We just need to not twist the faith to fit science or twist science to fit the faith. Uh, Brent writes on Facebook, thank you for the episode. I'm a longtime listener and have sent many rational seekers to this show. I think I have a few questions based on this episode. Uh, First, uh, if the writer of the account of Noah was writing something ahistorical, why do the figures preceding Noah have genealogies? We talked a bit about that a few minutes ago. Um, Basically, um, ancient Near Eastern genealogies, especially towards the beginning of a genealogy 
involve more elements of reconstruction. And so these uh, genealogies could be reconstructed in this period um, rather than, um, you know, rather than being literal records of who was biologically descended from whom. Because you had things like, well, we're all one group now, so we need a legal common ancestor. Let's give him a name. Or we know there was this legendary figure that we have in our in our in our traditions he must fit into this somehow. So let's let's fit him into the genealogy. So we have a way of conceptualizing how he relates to us. And in especially in the early portion of a genealogy from the ancient Near East, you will find this kind of reconstruction going on. OK, uh, second, there is also the problem that the account of Noah and his interactions with his sons did seem to have ramifications for the way other peoples were treated by the Israelites, like the children of Ham. Was the curse of Ham historical? So Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the uh, three sons of Noah. And after the uh, flood, uh, Noah planted a vineyard and enjoyed its fruits a little too much. And uh, there was an incident which uh, is rather disturbing that happened. The biblical author uses a kind of he uses a guarded mode of language to communicate something much worse that happened. And as a result of this, um, uh, Ham and his son Canaan are, uh, are cursed. And in terms of the degree to which this is historical, well, it could be, but it also is to be noted that the Israelites had tense relations with Hamites like the Egyptians and, you know, they'd come out of, they'd been slaves in Egypt and they came out of Egypt. And so they were kind of opposing cultures. And also they had tense relations with the Canaanites um, who they displaced in the promised land. And so I would tend to understand the curse of Ham as a reflection of the current relations that Israel had with Hamites and with um, Canaanites, rather than being something uh, literally historical. And three, I guess a final question would be, for Catholics of weaker faith and less formation, what would you counsel if they start having doubts about their faith as a result of listening to this? Please understand, I'm not accusing you of undermining anyone's faith. The issue isn't with you at all, but with a Catholic who's not as well formed. Well, um, I think that the answer is to uh, is to study and study in faith, in confidence that there are solutions um, and be willing to think about those solutions. So if you're if you're locked into viewing everything as absolutely literal, you will have problems. Um, but the more you study scripture and the degree of figurative language and literary artistry that it uses, you become more aware of, oh, there are ways to fit these things together. Uh, that's what I did. I mean, I came from a very conservative evangelical tradition that looked at everything very literally. Um, and uh, But I continued to study in faith, both studying the science and studying the scripture. And I realized, yeah, there just is more room for literary artistry here than than what I had previously perceived in my evangelical tradition. And so I don't I'm not afraid of uh, of 
of doing the study and working my way through these issues, there will be ways to reconcile them. It's just a question of from the faith and reason perspectives, what does which option for reconciliation does the evidence best support? Uh, Tony L. writes on YouTube, you've quite thoroughly demolished the idea of a literal worldwide flood from the reason perspective. Better you to do it than a smug atheist or agnostic. Thank you. And that's one of the reasons that I want to do mysteries like this on the show, because um, there will be smug atheists and agnostics out there on YouTube and the Internet more generally who will who will point to the scientific evidence and and use it to, as, in an attempt to disprove the faith or mock the faith rather than saying, let's look at this from both perspectives and see how they work together. I, I think there need to be Christian voices that do that. And so given my own interests and aptitudes, I have decided I need to be one of those voices. Scott Seal writes on YouTube, I truly believe that this kind of biblical analysis is critical in evangelizing a modern audience. We live in the scientific and historically critical age, but especially in America, so-called biblical fundamentalism is the dominant popular conception of the Christian faith. Ironically, I think this fundamentalism is one of the principal causes of unbelief, as it places the truth of the scriptures in direct opposition to truth as revealed by other means. Since there is only one truth, this cannot be the case, and people are smart enough to intuit it. To reach the modern heart with the truth, we must present the case in a manner that is consistent with sound reason. This approach does not dismiss miracles or the hand of God, but rather understands them in another way. I encourage you to make as many of these kinds of videos as possible to demonstrate that believing the Bible does not require leaving reality at the door. Thank you, Scott. And you're chiming in on the same kind of themes that uh, that we that we just mentioned in our previous comment. Um, I think it is important as part of evangelization and apologetics that Christians be able to talk knowledgeably and reasonably uh, about scientific matters and how they relate to the faith. And that's been something that's been the case that's been recognized ever since the time of St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine is actually in his writings can be rather pointed uh, about, look, don't be a Christian saying stupid stuff about science in front of unbelievers. Uh, we need to take the science seriously and show how it integrates with uh, the truth that we have from faith as well. We should not be um, uncritical in our analysis of our faith and we should not accept the interpretation of it that is the most simplistic and as a result of that end up saying things that are just scientifically ridiculous. Ed in New Mexico writes on YouTube, great first episode on the Great Flood. I'm looking forward to the second. Apparently it was a challenge for Noah to feed his family during their time on the ark. Couldn't go fishing for their food because they only had two worms. Yeah, that's uh, that would be a real <laughs> handicap. <laughs> so maybe they use fly fishing. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and then I Kung Fu You Too writes on YouTube. How can one get a Jimmy Akin action figure like at the bottom right of the screen? Oh, OK. So um, this is this will be what he's referring to is um, will be more obvious for people who watch the YouTube version of these uh, podcasts. And in fact, by the way, when you're at youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, 
be sure and subscribe and hit the bell notifications. I'm trying to grow my channel. We're getting close to 25,000 subscribers, and I'd really appreciate it. But what he's referring to is I have a bookcase um, behind me at an angle in my home studio. And on the bookcase, down at the bottom, there are a couple of shelves of stuffed animals. Those belong to my wife, my late wife. You can actually see a picture of her on the top shelf in her wedding dress, um, although it's very small uh, from the distance. But um, she cared a lot about her stuffed animals. She gave them all personalities and names, which I still know. Um, but after starting Mysterious World, uh, some uh, as part of the fan art that listeners sometimes send in, a couple of uh, very creative women sent in um, action figures, if you want to call them that, of me made out of yarn. And I decided a good place for them to live would be with my wife's stuffed animals. So if you look down in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, you'll see a couple of different yarn Jimmy Aiken constructions. Uh, one of them is using a Japanese form known as amigurumi, and the other one is using a more uh, form of yarn craft that's more common here in America. But the way I got them was by people sending them in who were fans. And I love having them. And so I let them uh, stay here with my wife's stuffed animals and let them be seen on the shows as a thank you to those uh, very creative uh, women who sent them in. If you would like uh, one, well, if those two women or other people who, who do yarn craft uh, would like to volunteer to make some, um, maybe we could, uh, maybe we could hold a drawing or something for an, <laughs> or an auction or something, or even, uh, make it a regular part of the merch that we're developing, depending on how much they're up for. <laughs> that would be interesting. That would be a lot of fun. The, uh, the Jimmy Akins action figure store. All right. Uh, so that's our mysterious feedback. Uh, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? This time we have a couple of videos about warp drive. And yes. these, yeah, these are videos uh, by one of my favorite science communicators. Her, she's from Germany. She's a, a um, theoretical physicist. Her name is Sabina Hassenfelder. And I watch a lot of her videos. Um, and two of her videos deal with warp drive. The first one we'll have a link to is a general background on warp drive and how it would actually work and what research had been done up to that point. And then the second is a video uh, giving an update on warp drive, because in the last year, there have been quite a number of new developments and new theoretical papers coming out about warp drive and what how, how it might work and what are the different possibilities. And um, and so these are pretty short videos. The uh, they're both like 11 minutes long or 10 minutes if you ignore the sponsor message at the end. Um, so they're both uh, easy to understand, scientifically accurate, and on an obviously interesting subject. So check out the Warp Drive videos, both the background and the update video. Excellent. So it is timely that Warp Drive is getting these new looks because it's about time for Zephram Cochran to invent Warp speed, warp drive technology, uh, according to Star Trek First Contact, anyway. <laughs> We're within a few decades, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So that's about uh, does it for us this time. We oh, would also wanted yeah. to say a special thanks to your wife, Melanie, and your daughter, Isabella, for doing the readings today. Yes, they did a, a great job, and thank you so much for them. 
Uh, so we would love to hear from you. What do you think of the Our Lady of Cabejo mystery and your theories about it? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Send a tweet to at mys underscore world or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619 619- Seven three eight four five one five. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we'll be talking about how Our Lady's dramatic prophecy was fulfilled, and then we'll go into analysis mode and look at the Cabejo revelations from the perspectives of faith and reason. Great. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. That helps us grow our community and reach ever more listeners. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial, and religious needs. Visit FearventoLaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, Let's Science. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com science.